You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Ocean Currents, a show where we talk about the blue part of our planet, the ocean. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. And on this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, ocean adventurers, archaeologists, tsunami experts, and more, all trying to uncover and learn about the mysterious and vital part of our planet. I bring this show to you from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. Cordell Bank is one of four national marine sanctuaries in California waters protected by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And Cordell Bank is located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius, radius on the Marin-Sonoma coast, and it's a hot spot for the ocean life above and below the surface. But today we're going to talk a little bit about um, a larger phenomenon. We're talking about tsunamis, and we're going to focus on tsunamis in general, but also on the second half of the show, we're going to focus on the marine debris um, impact from the tsunami last year. It's just been about a year ago that the Japan tsunami hit, and um, we're thinking about all the folks and people trying to rebuild their country and also thinking about the lasting impact of that. So when we come back today on the half hour, we'll talk about marine debris. But just in a few moments, we'll be talking with Dr. Vasily Titov from NOAA's Center for Tsunami Research. So stay with us. Thanks for staying with us. You're tuned to Ocean Currents. And today we're going to talk a lot about tsunamis and the lasting impact of marine debris on the second half of the show. So I'm uh, on the phone with me from Washington. I have Dr. Vasily Titov from the NOAA Center for Tsunami Research. And I just want to brief this a little bit. About a year ago, March 11th, one year will have passed since Japan suffered one of the worst natural disasters and human tragedies in history. The 9.0 earthquake and the tsunami that followed claimed nearly 16,000 lives and injured 6,000 more and damaged or destroyed countless buildings. Tsunamis are a painful reminder of how interconnected humans are with this planet and how the Earth's power dominates. Um, on the first half, we'll be talking about the tsunamis in general. And I know some of us here in California might be thinking a little bit more about it since we had a little earthquake this morning here in the Bay Area, but I don't think it was strong enough to generate any tsunami, and certainly because it was centered on land. But let's bring on Dr. Titoff. Welcome, Dr. Titoff. You're live on the air. Good to be here, Jennifer. Thanks so much. So I want to just talk a little bit about kind of what the work is that you do at the Center for Tsunami Research. Um, what is the main focus of the research center? Well, we are uh, uh, a research part of NOAA. Uh, so we develop, uh, and, and NOAA is a mission agency. Uh, the NOAA provides forecasts, of uh, weather forecasts, and tsunami forecast is part of the mission. Uh, we, as research, are uh, in support of that mission. So we're developing, uh, well, we study all aspects of tsunami, and in particular, we're developing um, forecasts that will be that that is being implemented into operations. Uh, so, tsunami forecast, which includes uh, uh, tsunami detection, uh, tsunami modeling, and putting it all together to provide what we call real-time forecast. It's uh, 
we, we're trying to predict how high and how intense tsunami is going to be, what's the impact of the tsunami is going to be uh, for mostly U.S. coastline uh, uh, in, in real time before tsunami actually hits uh, the, the coastline uh, in, in a particular location. So this is this probably heavily relies on a lot of technology. What what time period did we first start having the technology to be able to put this science together to predict more and forecast? Well, yeah, that uh, it, it it's very technologically intense and scientifically uh, intensive uh, task. Uh, it uh, boils down to many um, well to to. To many challenges, uh, engineering challenges, mathematical and, and scientific challenges. It, the, the, the forecast, of course, we want to look into the future. So uh, that we can do only with uh, numerical modeling. So the numerical modeling is a big part of it. Um, we develop uh, models that can produce a forecast accurately, but we 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 don't in, only want we want the forecast to be accurate, but we want it to be fast because tsunami. Uh, but its nature is such a phenomenon that it, um, it 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 would attack the closest coastline in probably about half an hour um, mm. at the most. So we want to make this forecast very fast. But but if forecast, if we want it to be accurate, it it has to be uh, relied on actual real time data. So it's an engineering challenge to make. To, to provide the data also in real time, very fast, that can be ingested into models, and then the models provide this forecast how this uh, wave that we just measured can manifest itself at the coastline. Very mm-hmm. challenging. I bet. How exactly is a tsunami generated? Sometimes it kind of it's hard to fathom with the size of the ocean. It's so big that something so destructive can come ashore from something that's generated hundreds of miles away. Can you talk just a little bit about exactly how a tsunami is actually generated? Yeah, well, that actually is uh, still uh, probably the biggest mystery in this whole problem. You know, how exactly a tsunami is is generated, believe it or not. Um, the well, we have some some ideas and theories, but it's very difficult to actually go into the you know source of the tsunami and and see it. Well, it, in fact, it has never been done. We've seen bits and pieces of data, so we we um, we, we have some ideas of how is it uh, is it generated, but what we don't know everything, and that's the challenge. So we don't we want to forecast something that we don't really know well what the origin of is. So the what the the what the, the the main theories are that the tsunami is generated by some uh it's it's a big uh uh scale event that uh, uh produces some kind of uh large scale and abrupt disturbance of the ocean floor that manifests itself on the surface of the ocean as a, as a, as a big disturbance of the uh, ocean surface and big when i say big i mean uh, hundreds of miles long and and wide, so it's a huge part of underwater real estate that that uh, uh, lifts up or, or drops down and provides uh, the, the same disturbance on the ocean floor or on the ocean surface. And that disturbance on the ocean surface then pro- start you know the, the the gravity takes over and it will propagate as a very long wave. It's so long that you don't even see the crest of the wave uh, uh, when you when you see the you know the, the the toe of the wave that's why tsunami it's it's it, it is a wave uh, and many people have wrong perception that uh, that that 
uh, that when we when we're talking about tsunami wave, they picture something like you know this our the ocean swell that that people are mostly familiar with. Tsunami wave is going to be very much different it, because of it's it's so long because the disturbance that generated is so so vast. You don't really see this nice curly wave that you usually see at the coastal uh, uh, sites. You will see more like a surge uh, that would uh, uh, that would bring water from ocean on 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 land what factors in the ocean influence the speed of travel for this wave yeah the nature of this wave is such that the fact that they're very long they they behave a little differently from uh, from the ocean wave the speed of the wave propagation depends uh, almost solely on uh, the depth of the ocean so the deeper the ocean the faster the wave propagates and in the deep in deep ocean a tsunami wave will be uh, traveling uh, about 500 600 miles per hour it's wow. the speed of the jet liner that's it's, huge it propagates very fast, so it can cross ocean, uh, uh, you know, fairly fast. Um, but it still gives us some time uh, to make a prediction. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing that that, that tsunamis characterize uh, uh, is the, uh, the, the the fact that the energy is lost. Uh, uh, well, it, it preserves the energy very well. So what tsunami does, it takes the energy that earthquake generates and puts into the ocean uh, uh, column, in the water column, and then it can uh, uh, transport this energy far away from the source, unlike the, the earthquake shaking. The earthquake shaking is, pro- is mostly felt right near the, the epicenter. Tsunami wave can transport this energy far, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the epicenter. So what are the detection units that you have to to get data to track the the wave? I'm assuming you have buoys around the ocean? Yeah, there's, uh, since we want to, to, to predict, well, to, to detect the wave as soon as possible, uh, we the, the, uh, we put our detectors in deep water where the wave propagates very fast. So the wave can reach them very fast. And we try to place them near potential sources of the tsunami. And in fact, uh, in, in case of Japan tsunami, there were several that's, uh, that's, they were placed not far from the source so we could detect them in about half an hour or so. So we actually saw the tsunami wave, well, was indeed generated and we saw how high this wave uh, was so these these detectors I you know these are really engineering marvels they they're very uh, uh, intricate instruments uh, it, this it's the detector itself is sitting on the ocean floor actually and measuring uh, and measuring pressure static pressure of the water pretty much the weight of the water uh, above it and the small disturbance of this water column. Uh, changes the pressure of the instrument, and that detects uh, the tsunami, the, the wave. So if the wave, you know, flows above above the detector, it changes the pressure. This this pressure is sent to the buoy on top of the sur- on, on the surface of the ocean, and then the buoy sends this data to satellites and to tsunami warning centers. So it's it's a very complicated system, but it's extremely accurate. The this detector, the the pressure uh, uh, detector that's sitting on the on the ocean floor. You know, about three miles uh, under the surface, can detect about one centimeter high tsunami. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing to me that we have these buoys that are so deep in the ocean to detect this these slight little changes. I imagine that maintenance and upkeep of the technology is vital to keeping the system intact for saving lives. Uh, that's 
that's uh, you're absolutely right, and, and that's a difficult task. But that's exactly what uh, what what NOAA is committed to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, in terms of waves, this seems. I've, I don't know a lot about it, tsunamis. I haven't seen a lot of pictures or video. The Japanese one certainly was heart-wrenching to watch the video footage, and it seemed like a huge mass of water compared to other ideas I've had of tsunamis. Is there a difference between uh, the danger of small waves versus big waves? Because it seems like the after effect of that tsunami hitting California, we didn't have a huge wave, but we had a lot of damage in California from that. So is there a big difference between the size of the waves in terms uh, of danger? Uh, of course, yeah. The Well, tsunami in Japan uh, propagated only uh, about, you know, 100 kilometers, you know, maybe 50 miles from the epicenter. Uh, so it lost very little energy. Uh, and 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 the 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 earthquake was was immense. Uh, it it was one of the largest tsunami we've ever seen. Uh, well, ever recorded. It, it, it was definitely the largest tsunami ever recorded. But it's uh, one of the largest on the on the books in terms of the you know historical accounts of the tsunami too. So when for the Japan, the the waves, like I said, lost very little energy. So the amplitude or the wave height was. Was was huge. We measured. Uh, uh, well, the, there's an international group of scientists that went there and, and, and were collecting all kinds of data that that we possibly could to make sure that we we use this, you know, all the lessons, uh, all the all the data to to learn the lessons we, that we could learn uh, from this tsunami. And it was um, measured. The highest uh, points where the wave reached was uh, above 40 meters uh, above. Uh, you know the the ocean uh, uh, the the ocean level. Wow! And forty meters is well, it's, it's one hundred and twenty feet. About one hundred and twenty feet. It's 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 huge. Okay. It's, and it's a vertical. It 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 inundated miles inland. So it was a huge scale uh, event and very difficult to imagine. But of course, California is thousands of miles away from the source. So uh, the energy. Uh, some energy was lost, and the amplitude was much smaller when it reached uh, the, uh, the coastline of the United States and California. But what, what's important to understand is that even with the smaller amplitudes, you could see how much energy was still transported. Mm-hmm. The, the tsunami is not only generating a lot of, you know, the amplitude would, would the high amplitude wave would inundate land and destroy, of course, virtually everything on its path, but it also generates very strong currents that you usually don't see in harbors and near the coastline. And that's another danger that uh, that uh, you should be aware anywhere, uh, even far away from the source. The, so, it was it was seen in Hawaii. It was seen all over uh, U.S. West Coast. And that's why there is so much damage in, in harbors, because the harbors are not designed, or, or the mooring of the boats are not designed to withstand the currents that were generated by these waves. So mm-hmm. even though the, the wave height was not that much to inundate land, you, we could still uh, felt we, we still felt the power of the wave by virtue of the of this huge flows uh, of low uh, the currents that were generated inside the harbors. So this is such an important line of work that you're in. By the way, for folks tuning in, uh, this is Ocean Currents, and we're talking with Dr. Vasily Titov from the NOAA Center for Tsunami Research. And their research center is very involved in forecasting and modeling for tsunamis after earthquakes. And I'm thinking, okay, this is a 24-hour 
hour around the clock type of job. Where were you on that day that the tsunami uh, or the earthquake started off the coast of Japan? Um, it, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. There's a 24 uh, uh, 24/7 type of work. Even though uh, our center is not the operational center, we but we are developing uh, tools in support of the operations, uh, which are 24/7, you know, operational entity view the tsunami warning centers. We have one in Hawaii and one in Alaska. Uh, but we, since we're developing the tools for them, we're always on call, and, and of course, any event uh, we would have to assess and test our tools. For in case of Japan, I actually was. Um, uh, far away teaching a training course in, in Africa, in Tanzania, mm. believe it or not. So in, in some interesting way, it shows the sort of the global reach of this of this phenomenon. We, uh, even though we weren't in Africa, we were, there were two of us there teaching the, uh, in fact, course on, on tsunami forecasting and as part of the international uh, tsunami warning system uh, development. That's wonderful, reaching out to other nations. Yeah. Um, speaking of vulnerability in terms of uh, coastlines and areas, where where do you consider the most vulnerable uh, vulnerable areas on the West Coast, I guess, particularly in California, to tsunamis? Yeah. Uh, well, what, uh, what we say is that any coastal area and, and uh, is vulnerable. And the recent tsunamis showed that uh, they... Many of them happened in the places where we didn't anticipate them, and, and, and 2004 tsunami in uh, Indonesia was a good example. Uh, it, it, it was not expected to be that large in this area, and, and even Japan tsunami, even though Japan has always, you know, it, it has always been considered uh, very active, uh, uh, seismogenically uh, a very active area, tectonically very active area. The size of the tsunami was uh, was a big surprise for the scientific community. So that what I'm saying in this uh, uh, long convoluted way is that any coastline is is actually vulnerable. The risk, of course, is different. And California is fortunately is uh, uh, is not that high on the list of the of the places that are very vulnerable for tsunami. But Japan tsunami has shown that uh, uh, the impact can be can be substantial, and the biggest. Well, for U.S., um, the the local, what we call the local tsunami sources, the sources that are close to the U.S. coastlines, are mostly in uh, uh, well, Alaska uh, and along the west coast, the Cascadia subduction zone that uh, extends all the way from Canada to to Northern California. These are the two big uh, areas that uh, that uh, uh, you know provide provide pretty big hazard to uh, coastline coastal population uh, of the United States and Japan this, this tsunami in Japan really showed demonstrated what we could expect in case of the big uh, earthquake and tsunami on the west coast in, in Cascadia because the setting is very difficult very very similar and uh, and the tsunami that that uh, we, we potentially we expect it we know it's it's going to happen sometime. Uh, we don't know when. It may it may happen, you know, hundreds of years from now, but it may happen uh, much sooner. It will probably look uh, very very, diff- very very similar to what we see in Japan. It's 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 a good reminder. I think uh, I know there's a lot of efforts in California to keep people aware, and it's a constant educational effort, just like preparedness for earthquakes. Uh, same thing for tsunamis and. Um, just because we don't see them very often doesn't mean we're not in danger. Is there a website that 
people can go to see these models of how the waves travel and the network of data that you study for predicting tsunami impacts? Yeah, well, there are several resources on the web. One can start with our website, which is a you know, research-oriented website, but you could see how the tsunamis are being forecasted and what's the system, sort of the overview of the system. That's nctr.pml.noaa.gov. Uh, it's a good start, and we have uh, a lot of links to uh, all kinds of resources, uh, educational and, uh, and, and and government resources uh, uh, for in terms of uh, uh, tsunami science, tsunami preparedness, uh, uh, tsunami inundation maps are all uh, linked there. So uh, it's a good resource for people to start exploring uh, what 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 they need to know about tsunamis. And everybody needs to know something about tsunami because all of us will be at the coastline at some point. Mm -hmm. So it's important for for us to know simple steps and simple things that uh, that you have to be aware of uh, to really save your life. That's, uh, that's mm-hmm. the main goal. And that website, again, is nctr.pmel.noaa.gov? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Very good. Well, we have a couple minutes here before one thirty, and I just wanted to invite any listeners to call in if you have a question about tsunamis to Dr. Vasily Titov. Our phone number that's available for calling in is 415-663-8317. We just have five minutes for any calls if anybody wants to give a call in to learn a little bit more. We actually have a call already, so hold on one second here. Hello, you're live on KWMR. Hello. Um, okay, we had a little earthquake this morning. So it, I live in Olima, which is 15 you know, feet above sea level. If there was to be an earthquake in, at the mouth of Tomales Bay, similar to the one in Japan that generated, a, what, a 40-meter tsunami, which would come down the bay, I mean, how, how high is Mount Wittenberg? You know, I think Mount Wittenberg is about a thousand feet. So, uh, I mean, where I live, there's you know, I'm close to the Alima Hill to escape that way, or go up on my four-wheel drive vehicle up into the pasture land. Which, you know, how far did that 40-meter tsunami travel? You know. Traveling down the bay through Point Reyes, the two miles from Point Reyes to Olima, what would be the level of water hitting Olima? Yeah, well, the, if I if I may answer, uh, the good news is we probably wouldn't see the tsunami of that scale in in California uh, just because we don't have similar sources right in front of the coastline there. But a good resource would be to go and see what the local uh, in, uh, Ooh, I think we have to. Is that my, my radio too loud, causing that? Yeah, you might want to turn your radio I did. off. I did. Okay. Continue. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm sorry. Be, go ahead. Please return to your answer. A, a good resource to you know first to go and see what what can be your uh, plan for evacuation in case of the tsunami. One is to go to a, a California Emergency uh, Services website and see what the inundation maps for your area show. California has pretty much uniform coverage of the evacuation, tsunami evacuation and inundation maps done recently. So you, I'm sure your, your coastal 
uh, town is covered by that, and that will show you uh, a projected uh, worst-case scenario inundation maps, and they will show you evacuation routes. Uh, also. Right, so the topography of the ocean floor off the coast of California in this immediate vicinity is dissimilar so much to what conspired in uh, Japan that that likelihood of such a devastating effect to occur here is not as likely as was likely to happen in Japan. I, I, I guess that's that's correct. It's, the um, we don't see faults. I, we can't say that it, it never can happen, uh, but right. we don't see the same setting as as in Japan. The Japan uh, tsunami was generated by a, uh, a fault that's located at what we call subduction zone. It's a very big fault between two. Uh, 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 continental plates, ocean plate and continental plate. We don't see that uh, in in California, in most places in California. However, we see we have the same similar uh, uh, fault along uh, Washington, Oregon, and part of Northern California. Uh, right. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thanks for the call. Okay, bye. <clears throat> that actually brings, that was a question I was going to ask because Tomales Bay is a very, this is our local watershed right next to the Point Reyes West Marin community or inside the West Marin community. It's a very narrow entrance to the bay. And does tsunami energy get, does it have a bigger wave when there's a smaller entrance? You were talking about harbors and bays. Does it, would it make it a bigger wave coming inside? That's, that's a very involved question, interesting question. In fact, tsunami is a Japanese word, and it's a combination word. It's, it combines from two characters, two Japanese characters. One means harbor, and the other means wave. And what it means is that it's a wave that you can see only in the harbor. And that sort of goes back to the to this you know the the dynamics of the tsunami wave that it really manifests itself near the coastline in the harbor. So. And what we saw in Japan, there was a lot of engineering. You know, there were, the harbors were were, were uh, uh, protected by all kinds of jetties and, and seawalls, and that didn't seem to work very well if, if you see tsunami of that scale, uh, and as, as we just saw in Japan. So while the engineering approach has been tested and tried, it, it has limited the it's it's a, it's one of the lines of the defense, but it cannot be the the only one. Mm-hmm. So the 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 wave, the, the jetties, and all the, uh, uh, the 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 narrow entrance for the harbor, they usually protect harbors from wind waves, and they okay. do a very good job in that. They would not be protecting very well from tsunami waves, believe it or not. Okay. Well, we'll have to take a look closer here at our local emergency authorities to get a closer look at Tomales Bay, and it's something that's been on my mind. But you know what? We're just out of time here, and I just want to say thank you, Vasily, for your time and your work in uh, using science to help forecast the modeling for a notification systems around the world. It's a really vital science, and I really appreciate your time today. Oh, well, thank you very much, and my pleasure being there. Thank you. And for folks that are staying with us here, in just a minute or two, we'll come back and talk about the after effects of the Japanese tsunami, the marine debris. There's been a lot in the news about uh, this massive debris that entered the ocean, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a few moments. So please stay with us. You're listening to Ocean Currents on KWMR.
with us. You're listening to KWMR, and this is Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and with me on the phone is Diana Parker from the NOAA Marine Debris Program. Welcome, Diana. You're live on the air. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for calling. We just had a lot of energy talk about tsunamis. Oh, and wonderful. <laughs> um, of course, everybody wants to know about the after effects because of all the marine debris that entered the ocean from this recent tsunami. So about, do you know how many hundreds of miles of coastline this tsunami in Japan covered? This tsunami uh, covered roughly 217 square miles. And for some perspective, that's roughly half the area of Santa Cruz County. So just an an enormous amount of coastline inundated by the tsunami. The, The waves had a maximum height of about 130 feet and the tsunami caused a 15 to 20 foot rise of a uh, hundred mile wide seabed, nearly 40 miles from shore. And basically, everything in its path was pulled out to sea, including thousands of buildings and structures and cars and boats. And with an event like this happens, what is the immediate response by NOAA's Marine Debris Program? Well, early on, we knew that the debris would be an issue, obviously, first and foremost in our minds is the, the massive human tragedy of, of the event. The disaster took more than 16,000 lives, injured another 6,000, and destroyed or damaged you know, tens of thousands of buildings. Right away, we knew that a lot of the heavier debris would likely sink right off the coast of Japan, but that much of the, the lighter debris, things that are made to float, could be an issue. We quickly started to observe the debris with satellites. We also worked with the, the Japanese Coast Guard and, and with the U.S. Navy, who were out doing search and rescue missions. Debris was able to be seen by satellite for nearly a month, and then pretty much waves and dispersion. It just wasn't able to be detected anymore by satellite, although we know there's lots of debris floating around. What were what's the ongoing efforts that happen to try to track this debris? Is there the modeling going on? I know there's oceanographic models that I've learned about that kind of predict where things are going to go. We've got a couple of things going on. We are working with other government organizations to try to find the debris where we think it might be located with higher resolution satellites. So just because we we couldn't see it with the the satellites we were originally using, those were lower resolution. So we're we're looking with with much higher resolution satellites. And we also modeled the debris potential path. Just a, a quick note about modeling. You know, those can tell us where we can reasonably expect debris to go and when, but it's not quite real world. It is possible for debris to sink and break up. You know, we like to remind people that it's been at the mercy of the enormous Pacific Ocean for almost a year now, anything is possible. In terms of tracking and predictions, we know these are just predictions and there's lots and lots of different forces that can affect these, but what is the projected path at this point, a year later of what we know, in terms of the remaining floating debris? I've heard that it's near the Hawaiian Islands. I've also heard it's already hit the West Coast here um, in in the Pacific Northwest, but what's the latest in terms of those predictions? So our models tell us that, you know, if, if the debris follows the, the path that, you know, historical ocean conditions might make a piece of debris go, um, that it would pass the northwestern Hawaiian Islands as early as this winter, so now, 
and then gradually make its way towards the West Coast, Alaska, and Canada in 2013, and then circle back towards the main Hawaiian islands in uh, 2014. And, you know, we expect that beachgoers might notice a gradual increase in smaller debris items, plastics, maybe lumber. There have been reports of buoys washing up on the West Coast. And at this point, NOAA hasn't confirmed any that any of those pieces are, in fact, from the tsunami. It's very difficult to to tell where any one piece of debris came from, just because those, those types of, of debris show up on the West Coast all the time, particularly debris from Asia. But, you know, we're not ruling anything out. It's, it's entirely possible for things that are made to float to ride a little higher and catch wind and then show up ahead of expectations. So those are the westerly winds that they'd be riding? Uh, yes, correct. Coming straight across. So California, we, we can expect 2013 as a potential. But, I mean, we're not talking about this massive debris field, are we? I mean, how do we know which is tsunami debris which is, or versus what's just regular marine debris? It's horrible that we have this categorization now about what washes up on the beaches. But it's, a, it's a, just a fact. We have a ton of plastic in the ocean. And what... What's a diff- what's the difference, and is there anything some anything a beachgoer would be able to tell in terms of it being from the tsunami? Sure. Oh, so you're right. the The image of a, a massive flotilla of debris headed towards the U.S. Is, is dramatic, but not realistic at this point. The debris has dispersed far across the Pacific Ocean to the point where our our partners in vessels and in planes who regu- regularly travel the North Pacific are reporting very few debris sightings. We would expect people to notice a, an increase in the types of debris that, that typically wash up anyway. It is possible that some hazardous materials, like for example an oil drum, might come ashore. And we encourage people not to touch those types of debris leave it where it is, report it to authorities. But otherwise, people should feel free to to pick up the debris, join in on cleanups, or be generally aware that this is an, an ongoing problem for many communities in the Pacific Northwest yeah, and maybe, California. And perhaps due to the heightened media around it, maybe more people will come out for more cleanups, which is always great to help clean up the ongoing uh, input we're getting. Now, I, there has been, I know last year, I had Curtis Ebesmeyer on our show a couple mm-hmm. months ago, and sure. we, we talked a little bit about the, this is before there was much science in terms, of, before much science was being announced in terms of danger, but we were hypothetically talking about the radioactivity, and there was a large radioactive event after the tsunami, and is there any chance of debris coming ashore to be what we call hot in terms of radioactive? Right. Radiation experts have all agreed that it is highly unlikely that radioactivity will be a problem, just given the the timing of events and the you know amount of time that the debris has spent in the ocean at this point. The EPA and the Food and Drug Administration were you know regularly monitoring for for radioactivity you know heightened levels in the days following the the tsunami and the meltdown at Fukushima, and, and they found none. So well, that's, um, that's highly true. unlikely that that will be a problem. 
This, the idea of uh, the heavy stuff sinking near shore and also when Dr. Titov was talking about the impact of the the uplift of the seafloor there, my mind immediately is going to the near shore habitats of Japan and what those look like right now. Mm-hmm. Is there any efforts by the NOAA Marine Debris Program to look at the near shore submerged impacts in terms of the stuff that has sunk? And is there anything that can be done about that? Well, we are are working very closely with the Japanese government. They've done a tremendous amount of work on this issue, even while dealing with rebuilding their nation and the the tragedy that happened to them. You know, they've done a a lot of work, and they're actually planning to release some some figures sometime in the next month or so. So, you know, I won't speculate on any of that until it actually comes out. But, yes, that work is being done. I'm sure it's a huge impact to their economy overall as well, since there's a lot of seafood that is uh, harvested in Japan. Absolutely. Pretty scary. In terms of what's happening now, I know that there's probably folks that want to get involved in terms of monitoring and kind of getting a baseline assessment. And most of our listeners are probably here in California, but they could be elsewhere. Is there any type of effort in terms of gathering any baseline data of the types of items and amounts of items? And can people help contribute to that? Absolutely. We absolutely need volunteers to help us gather baseline data because if we know what's out there and in what volume and what types of debris are already on the beaches every day, then we'll be able to notice a change in in volume or, or types of debris. And so anybody that's interested in helping out can request Marine Debris Program Shoreline Monitoring Guides and that they can request it at md.monitoring at noaa.gov. What what does this monitoring guide entail? What does it have? It's a very user-friendly protocols for how to survey beaches put together by our our ACE uh, researchers here at NOAA. It's just a how-to guide for going out and and surveying the beach in a a way that uh, we can collect the best and most scientifically sound data. Mm-hmm. Well, here we have, um, within the Gulf of the Farallones region, a program called Beach Watch, and it's been an ongoing program where uh, volunteers are out taking baseline data of our, our beaches and taking an, a lookout for things, so I'm sure they're going to be involved in in uh, contributing to your data needs there. That's great. Is there any specific type of items that, I mean, you were mentioning oil barrels, but was there something else, anything else that might be characterized as from the tsunami that you would want to know about at the NOAA Marine Debris Program, and should people try to contact the program about it? You know, not every item found on the beach with Asian writing is, is from the uh, Japan tsunami. You know, marine debris is an everyday problem, and, and these types of debris wash up all the time. But we are asking beachcombers who spot significant volumes of debris or any items that they feel certain are connected to the tsunami to report it to disasterdebris at noaa.gov. And, of course, they should gather as much types of information as possible, where they saw it and what type of item it is, uh, just to give us an idea of what's washing up on the beaches out there. In the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, since it sounds like it's closest there right now, and those are some fragile islands and coral atolls around there and breeding albatrosses and all sorts of seabirds, is there efforts to try to collect debris that makes landfall there on those islands? We are working very closely with the Fish and Wildlife Service. And, you know, As you mentioned, some of those 
Northwestern Hawaiian Islands, some of the most unique ecosystems in the world. They have an active staff up there that uh, regularly monitors the beach. They they do a lot of debris removal up there as well. Mm-hmm. Any reports yet of any items washing up? No, not yet. I know one of the big concerns out there is the endangered monk seal. They are severely endangered and highly impacted by specifically fishing nets. Right. I, I mean, I will say that we don't know exactly how much debris is floating out there and exactly what's still floating, like what types. But, you know, we do know just from our everyday experiences with debris that, you know, nets ensnare animals and they can eat plastic. So this, this could have the potential to to negatively impact our our ecosystems as well as navigation. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's it's an ongoing issue. I think that's what I I keep coming back to is this is underscoring the issue of plastic in the ocean. It's just continuing to go in. What are some efforts that the Marine Debris Program is really trying to work on in terms of that ongoing problem of marine debris, not necessarily associated with the tsunami, but just the ongoing issue of plastic getting into the ocean? Well, obviously, the the most important piece is is education because you know the more people recycle, the less they they use, the more they reduce the amount of plastic. No littering is is our key message. You know that's the best way we can really prevent the the plastic pollution problem. With with fishing nets, we do have a pretty successful program called Fishing for Energy which is located all over the country. We partner with Cavanta Energy and Schnitzer Steel to place bins at ports where fishermen can recycle their derelict, their old fishing gear for free. And mm-hmm. then Cavanta Energy uh, burns the, the nets for energy. And that program is also pretty popular in Hawaii. It's where, where we started it. So that's one of our, our um, efforts to keep fishing gear out of the ocean. Interesting. How much energy can it uh, generate? Oh, <laughs> it's it's a lot. Um, at this point, I think we've collected over 700 tons of, of gear, which can, can wow. power a lot of homes. Wow, that's incredible. Well, if anybody wants to give a call in, I'm going to open up the phone for just a few minutes. We just have about three or four minutes here. So if there's anyone with a burning question, that phone number is 663-8317. And you can talk with Diana Parker here from NOAA Marine Debris Program in terms of uh, marine debris issues. The number is 415-663-8317. And we have a caller. Hold on a second here. Welcome. You're live on the air. Hi. I have a question. Um, I don't know if, if your guest is familiar with Helen Caldicott, but she has stated that the genie's out of the bottle and any fishing should never be, you should never consume any fish that was uh, fished off the coast of Japan now. And, you know, all the nuclear waste that was poured into the ocean, I mean, you know, the shelf life is the big thing. I mean, it's indefinitely radioactive, you know, compared to a human lifespan. So anything coming onto the coastline that would be conceived to be from Japan would only be ventured upon with a hazardous, uh, you know, waste costume on in a Geiger counter. Um, how can How can you, you know, say anything is benign without, you know, uh, I, uh, it just seems uh, impractical. Uh, so um, I'll just take my answer off the air. Thank you. All right. Any comment on that? I think there was a, a, 
a difference there. I think the ingestion bioaccumulation question is perhaps a different than the actual transfer of debris. Yeah, I, I can't really um, speak to the, the seafood issue very well. Every radiation expert that we've spoken to over the last couple of months has assured us that even if there was the, the chance that a piece of debris was exposed to the, the contaminated water, that you know by the, the time it came over here, the, the levels would just be so low beyond concern. And you know that said, we, there have been some spot checks. We, a Russian research vessel found a small fishing boat in September uh, northwest of the northwestern Hawaiian Islands and it was registered to the Fukushima prefecture. And they tested it with a Geiger counter, and, and those levels were normal. So it's just a lot of evidence pointing towards the fact that this is not going to be a major concern. Well, I think the other uh, question that he proposed is something I'm going to try to look into and see if there's more information about in terms of the impact on living things in terms of that bioaccumulation. And so that's something we'll look into in the future for perhaps a future show. So thanks for that question. And we have time for one more question. We have a caller. So, caller, you're live on the air. Hi, Jen. This is Richard James. Hi there. Our lo- local beachcomber extraordinaire. I'm sure you're going to be hearing from him, Diana. Oh, wonderful. Hello. <laughs> Hi there, Diana. I am curious if Noah has ever looked into any kind of a program to assign costs to the fishermen that deposit so much plastic in the ocean, um, you know, some kind of a, like a, a CRV, like we pay a nickel on a, on a bottle of fruit juice. Mm-hmm. Each year during crab season, I pick up thousands and thousands of feet of polypropylene and other oil-based rope and hundreds of crab buoys and hundreds of bait jars um, and it seems like if you're, if I'm a crab fisherman, I can just dump all this stuff in the ocean. And I talk to the fishermen, and they get mad. They lose two hundred dollars every trap they they lose. But right. but what is what can be done to assign you know pass that cost on to the consumer? Because the earth is paying the price, but all we really seem to care about is how much crab costs a pound at the market. Right. Thanks for that question. We have about a minute left for that response. Sure. Well, so, so, you know, one of the the things about our program that we think is working pretty well is that we, you know, are are taking a a non-regulatory approach to some of our prevention and and outreach activities. You know, we're we're finding that people are are willing to participate in our recycling and uh, prevention programs. And, you know, as as you mentioned, there's a lot of fishermen out there that are, are losing good gear that they don't you know, they're not necessarily wanting to lose. It, it Sometimes it just gets lost out there. You know, I definitely think that, that you know, maybe there are other groups out there exploring those options, but um, our, our approach is, is, is one of something voluntary where people can make the active choice to, to recycle their gear. Thanks a lot for taking those questions, Diana. I, I know this is a really challenging issue for those of us that absolutely love the ocean and the coast and um, this pl- problem of plastic and gear in the ocean is huge. It's, an, it's a national effort. It's an international effort. And there's so many questions of how do we solve this problem. So thank you for your time today and talking a little bit about this specific event that's tied to a much larger issue in terms of plastic and debris in the ocean. And I appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And thanks to the callers for calling in, bringing up some good questions about uh, marine debris in the ocean. And 
I, I'm going to look into seeing a little bit more about the bioaccumulation. It's a really interesting question in terms of radiation, and I don't know much about that, and we'll see if there's some experts we can find regarding that specific issue. But matter of fact is we know that we have a lot of plastic in the ocean. This is a really tough issue in solving, and we have to look at where we can touch on our individual behavior habits and get involved in community efforts and larger efforts to try to reduce our dependence on plastic for sure. But in the meantime, stay tuned uh, to the marinedebris.noaa.gov website for updated news about the marine debris related to the tsunami. There is a Frequently Asked Questions page on that website that you can learn about. And this is based on the most uh, available science based on the partners they work with. They're working with the University of Hawaii quite a bit and uh, putting out the most accurate information based on science. And keep updated on that. And certainly if things change, I'll be bringing it up on the show here on Ocean Currents because we want to keep an eye on our coastline. But thank you again for tuning in today to Ocean Currents. Uh, This is Jennifer Stock, and this show will be saved as a podcast on the Cordell Bank website within about a week, cordellbank.noaa.gov. And I'm going to wrap it up here. Thanks for tuning in today to Ocean Currents. For listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.